You're listening to the Hub City Church Podcast. To learn more about Hub City Church, including our gathering times, you can check out our website at albanyhubcity.com. Good morning. Hey, just to kick things off, uh, because I was also bribed by your kid and your sitting front row, I want to say happy birthday to Seth Styling. Can I give you a hug? Happy birthday. Is it anyone else's birthdays? I'm giving out free hugs. Really? Oh, okay, later, later. Just kidding, unless you want to come up here. Um, guys, good to see you. Happy birthday. Uh, what a great day. It's a, it's a beautiful day. Um, we are going to cover a lot today. So today is the entire Sermon on the Mount. Exciting. If you don't know, the Sermon on the Mount is three chapters long in Matthew, um, and so we're going to spend the next four to five hours here uh, going through <laughs> all that. Um, it actually, it's been hard to like, it, it was, it's difficult to summarize, like how do you summarize something like that? Um, so first of all, the biggest caveat I can give you is that we spent earlier this year, we spent six whole weeks um, in diving line by line in the Sermon on the Mount. So a lot of you were here for that. But if you are sitting here today and you're like, oh, he didn't quote my favorite verse from it or whatever, like, please go re-listen to that. That is where we dove into the weeds. We got really into line by line and all that stuff. So it's on our website, podcast, YouTube, all that kind of stuff. So we spent a lot of time going line by line through all this. The purpose of today, since we're in the Gospel of Matthew narrative, is to kind of stay at like a, we are going to get into a little bit, but stay at a 30,000 foot view, kind of flyby of like, okay, now we went into the weeds earlier this year, so now we can look at what, why did Matthew include this? What is he trying to say about Jesus? What is he revealing about this theme of the kingdom of heaven that he's been uh, revealing to us through his gospel writing? And so we're going to kind of stay on that level, okay? So we're going to fly by. So um, <clears throat> like I said, we're going to, um, if you want to go check that out, it's all over our website and stuff. But um, Matthew, throughout Matthew, he has a lot of themes that he's going to bring up. And we've seen a lot of those. We've kind of, we've seen, we're going to see even more so, but we're going to see this, uh, this theme of the authority of Jesus start to unveil and reveal itself to be a lot. The kingship of Jesus. He talks about this kingdom, but a kingdom needs a king. So who is, who is Jesus as king Jesus, we looked at the first couple of chapters of Matthew, Jesus representing a new Israel, right? He kind of paralleled a lot of the Israel story. What does that look like? He also represented a new Eden, a new start to humanity. He represents a new way to be human. And one that he does here as he gets to the Sermon on the Mount, we'll unpack in a second, is Matthew is also going to unveil Jesus as representing the new and even better Moses figure for the people. But to get to that theme, we first need to go backwards. So if you'll go with me in your minds, and you can go even in your Bibles to Exodus, um, Exodus chapter 16 specifically, 
Um, just to give it up or give background a little bit, the, ex, the Israelite people have been in slavery in Egypt for a little over 400 years. Um, obviously, it's not an ideal situation. Their God was Pharaoh, even though they might have still believed in Yahweh God. Their God, to look at them, was still Pharaoh. Uh, their kingdom was Egypt. It was more bricks with less straw. The work was great. And finally, though, one came to represent outside of Egypt in Moses. One came to represent the God that was going to free them. And through, you know, if you know the story, through the trials and the plagues and all that, finally the Israelites are set free from Egypt. They are no longer slaves there. They gather their things. They run. They kind of have a daring escape from Pharaoh's army. They pass through the Red Sea and then coming to the other side as a free people. But sometimes there's a focus on what you're coming out of and not so much knowing what you're getting yourself into. So the people were so focused on getting out of Egypt, and when they found themselves just a few days later into this vast wilderness, they were freed from this incredible slavery. They start to question what they were saved for. What is this thing? So this is Exodus 16. In fact, they started grumbling at Moses and Aaron. They said, would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots <clears throat> and ate bread to the full, for you have brought us up out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. So they actually remembered their slavery fondly. They actually remembered these apparent meat pots and all this stuff that they probably didn't have. But this is the deception that happens when the goal is to get out of something, but not necessarily into something new. But God was calling them into something new. And if you know the story, he, he miraculously provides bread from heaven, manna from heaven, water from a rock. And he leads them to the base of a mountain. And he calls Moses to come up to be in his presence as he prepares for them what they are going to be called into. And then comes God's law, his commandments for what it means to live as his people, what it means to represent his presence here on earth to all the nations. And God says this through Moses to the people, Exodus 19, 5. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. That's what they're going into these recently freed nomads out of slavery were now going to either, uh, <clears throat> we're going to be signposts to the world for who God is and what this God does. And this, as you know, sets up the grand story of the Old Testament to where the Israelites succeeded sometimes in that and failed miserably in representing that. And we have that as our background. So fast forward to Jesus now. We've seen how Jesus' life not only mirrors the journey of Israel, but it also now mirrors the very character of Moses. If you remember the timeline graphic that we made, you start looking at this and you see how there's lots of things that are the story of Israel, <clears throat> but Moses also had a miraculous birth, right? And someone was out to kill him. Both him and Jesus came out of Egypt, excuse me, <clears throat> Um, Moses passed through the Red Sea. Jesus passed through the Jordan River. 
right? Moses was in the wilderness leading the people. They were there for 40 years, and then he was on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. Thanks, man. Appreciate that. Oh, thank you. My goodness. <clears throat> Can I get a donut, too? That'd be awesome. <laughs> I'm kind of hungry. <clears throat> Um, Moses, he goes on the mountain, right, and like brings the law um, of, of God, and Jesus now is on this little mount. <clears throat> okay, it could be a plane, it could be something, but he's on something, and he's about to bring the law that is the heart of the law. And one of the major themes that Matthew has been revealing and will reveal even more to his readers and hearers is that Jesus is not only bringing everyone to recognize the pattern of God's great story of Israel, but that Jesus is the one who will deliver the people out of slavery into freedom, like Moses was a part of, but he will do it greater. Jesus is not just a new and better Moses. He is the Savior that the Moses character just represented among God's people. Moses was never the savior, <clears throat> right? Just the mouthpiece and representative of God and such a massive part of their history, but Jesus is God in the flesh. So in Jesus himself, there are now those same hopes, deliverance from slavery, new divine teaching from God himself, that he would be the one to save the people from their sins and that the people would once again be a covenant people. And we've seen from Matthew 1 to 4, first four chapters, God has come to be Emmanuel, God with his people, and to show this great light in the darkness. His teachings and healings have already begun to demonstrate that the kingdom of heaven is happening right then in their midst. And Jesus, so, so much like Jesus has grown a following, has mirrored a story like the wilderness generation of Israelites, and now before the people fall back into their old ways, Jesus is going to tell them not what they're freed from, but what they're welcomed into. Jesus calls this the kingdom of heaven. And before he gets into any of his teachings, <clears throat> and before we start taking notes of like, okay, what do we need to do to inherit eternal life or to get into the kingdom of heaven, right? He first tells the people the very first thing is repent. He already said this message in the previous chapter, repent for the kingdom of heaven is here. Before he gets into any instructions, before you start worrying about anything, repent. Literally turn in your heart, your mind, your whole being toward God. Orient your life towards God and his will and his way. That's how we can have ears to hear him and eyes to see him. So before we get into it, let me pray um, for us to just have that mindset and that heart to hear God's words. <clears throat> Would you pray with me? God, we thank you so much for your word. Thank you that this is recorded, that we can look at it and dive into it and dissect it, but also just stand in the, just the beauty of it, that we can all sit under your teaching today, God. May we just see you as the one who is giving their word today, Lord. We pray this in your name. Amen. <clears throat> so what does God's kingdom look like? So first, they have to understand, the people in this time, in, in Jesus' time, has to understand God's kingdom from Jesus himself. They have to let go of their preconceived notions of what this kingdom is supposed to look like, right? They might think it looks, it's going to look like Jerusalem, but it's going to be even grander or better. It's going to look like, like dethroning Rome and conquering the world, just like everyone else does. Like, what is this going to look like? But Jesus is going to reveal the way of life that the kingdom of heaven brings to earth. 
and I'm gonna have just a few um, kind of tips, or not tips, but like well, you'll see. The Jesus kingdom is, is upside down. There's gonna be a few of these throughout where we just, we, as the text reveals it, of just to start to think through. This is a different kind of kingdom. And the first thing is it's upside down. He's sitting down. He has a great crowd of people before him. And the people are prone to think, okay, this kingdom of heaven, what's it going to be like? It's probably the best of the best and the brightest and the wealthiest and the strongest. And like, oh, we're starting to get competitive edge. And Jesus sits down. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Well, that's different. That's very different than an expectation, right? He goes on. He says, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek not the strong, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven." Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now just think about, wait, a lot of that's familiar to a lot of us. We've heard that in a lot of our lives and stuff. But just think about the people here have never heard that before. They've never heard that. They sat down, okay, this kingdom of heaven, we're with you, Jesus. The disciples had just left everything everything, even their families to follow him. And they're sitting there like, what do you have for this? And he says, blessed are you who mourn. It's like, okay, blessed are the meek, but you know, and that's how mind blowing it would be. And again, we're, we are not going to get too into the weeds. Go listen to the, our, our bigger thing. But real quick, the word blessed, I'm going to explain this more in our previous uh, sermon series, but the word blessed is probably best defined by what's called the principle of first mention, which means the Bible term is kind of defined by the first time it's used in the Bible, okay? So this is Genesis 1.22. If it's like, what is kind of blessed? What's the idea of that? This is when God is, is, um, is blessing the, the creation, what he has made. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the waters in the seas, and let birds multiply on earth. Blessed has this idea of a life-giving life. I've blessed you to now go and be a blessing. And if you work through that list, you'll see that Jesus is calling God's people, saying, the most life-giving life, the most blessed that I can give you so that you can be a blessing, are those who live as humbled, gentle, sin mourners, hungry for righteousness, merciful peacemakers, and ones with pure hearts. This is what it means to be a life-giving life. This is what my kingdom is made up of people who aren't just going to take, but they're actually going to give. And I'm going to bless those who give. And there's a purpose to all that, because when God's people embody that kind of living for his namesake and are blessed to be a blessing, then they become two things to the world, salt and light. Preserving and restoring the goodness of God in this world Salt preserves and light reveals. Think about the ancient world. Salt slowed the decay of meat and act as a preservative. And just like that, if God's people embody the Beatitudes as lifestyles, they're like God spreading salt on his decaying earth, preserving the beauty still found within. 
Likewise, embodying the Beatitudes is as as if light was shining in the darkness, exposing the darkness, revealing what can be redeemable in it. This is the kingdom of heaven crashing into earth, not afraid of the darkness, but coming into it, and the darkness will not consume it. Now, some of of Jesus' disciples may say, well, this all sounds pretty neat and romantic, and this is great, Jesus, but we actually have a law. We already are the people of God. We have a law from Moses, and we, we kind of know the rules to do. So it's important to know that as Jesus is saying this stuff, it might sound new to them, but he's not flipping the script. He's not going against their law or against what God has for the people. It's important that this new rabbi teacher is seeing that he's not teaching something different. He's actually fulfilling it in himself. This goes back to God saying through Moses, this isn't just about you living well or acting great. This is what is needed to shape in you hearts that make up a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. This was always the intent of the law. Jesus' kingdom fulfills the law. Jesus teaches in in, uh, Matthew 5, 17, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them but to fulfill them. You may know what to do, but many of you have lost the why you do it. I'm here to remind you of the heart of the law, to fulfill what the law was supposed to do in you. And Jesus goes on to show that through numerous examples of you've kind of read this or you've memorized this or you know what you're supposed to do, but I tell you why it was there in the first place and what kind of heart it should should shape in you. So he goes through examples of anger, of lust, of taking oaths, loving your enemies, and you can go read those. But Jesus is driving home that this isn't just like a curriculum to follow to inherit eternal life. These aren't just life hacks to happiness. This is what God wants to produce in there. Let's look at one example of anger. 521, you've heard that it was said of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable of judgment. What's he referring to? The old law, right? Ten Commandments. Verse 22, but I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. In a nutshell, God made life. So murder is humans deciding life should not be. But Jesus is saying, so is counting someone worthless out of anger in your thoughts. And in your hearts, this is like murdering the thought that this person isn't even necessary and loved by God and is in desperate need of redemption, just like we are. Jesus is revealing how serious God takes anger. And here's the sentencing. Instead of calming down, going about your day, forgetting about that horrible person, whether you know them or not, continuing to try to worship God with your better than them life, what does he say? Verse 23, so if you are offering your gift at the altar, And there remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Fascinating, right? Before you even give an offering of worship, if there is anger unresolved, go and resolve that to the best of your ability. That's actually an act of worship before you give your offering. Not only to resolve that human tension, but that so you can worship fully with a heart of forgiveness. 
Now, sometimes it's impossible to try and go find that person again, and I think there's grace for that. But there's often very real anger that people feel towards people, and they know, all, they know it all the time. Extended family members, spouses, friends, colleagues, we're coming into a holiday season. Some of that gets stirred up big time, right? Jesus is doubling down on not focusing on the not murder part, because most of us probably aren't going to do that to that crazy uncle or whatever. But there's malicious anger in our hearts sometimes. Don't be trapped by it. Whether it's from you or from another, don't let someone else be trapped by that. Care for someone else's anger just as strongly. So Jesus, to those people and even us today, today if you have unresolved residual bitterness and anger in your heart, or you know someone has that against you, confessing that to God, and if at all possible, going to that person and doing what you can to create forgiveness in your heart. Jesus says this is crucial before you even come to the altar in worship. Jesus says, if you do not heed this warning, 526, truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. There will be this debt that is so weighty on us. This is one example of many where Jesus is getting at the heart of the matter, just not just following the rules. Because this is and always has been a goal for God's people. Is another one. Jesus' kingdom forms hearts of love. Jesus is not here just to rehash the same old issues for people. He's here to teaching true understanding of the purpose of the law, that it transforms the hearts of the people away from sin and into righteousness, from death into life. And if you read more of chapter 5, this isn't just loving things you like or people you like or like you. Jesus says the world does that well. Even the tax collectors love only the people that they like. This is a kind of love that's so upside down that you could actually love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Just sit in that. that who, who does that? Who te- that's so opposite of all our natural inclinations. So how is that possible? How could this happen? Right? And the goal has always been there. And I want to just read to you, there's two that we love here at Hub City, but we read all the time that if the people knew God's word and they knew the prophets of old, there are certain ones that could be coming to mind here. This first one is Ezekiel 36. God tells his people, there'll be a day. And he says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I'll actually remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful, excuse me, to to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. I'm actually going to give that to you. It's not something you have to go to the gym and work out yourself. I want to give that to you. Coupled with Jeremiah 31, for this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. If that comes to mind at all, there's such a beauty here of saying, God, how can I have a heart that could actually love my enemies and pray for those who persecute me? He says, I I can't. God, you have to give that to me. 
I have to surrender to that heart. What man has not realized, but Jesus knows, is man cannot do this. Man cannot give themselves a new heart just by following the rules. That would be out of their own self-righteousness. This needs to be given by God himself and taught by God himself, stemming from his righteousness and his alone. There is no righteousness of man that can produce in themselves what only God can produce. And Jesus is here on a hillside mountaintop, retelling in his own divine words that God is dwelling among them again and wants to form in them a new heart. This is a new heart that is blessed to be a blessing, to be a life-giving life. Lives that, include, that have love that includes enemies. Lives that give generously to the needy. That lives of, of prayer for the world, for all to come to know God. Ultimately, hearts that are filled up with love by God to be poured out as love for others. But Jesus doesn't want his followers to be confused. He says this new heart is not formed by pious religiosity. You don't get this kind of heart from others' recognition of you. You don't get this kind of heart through reputation of your good deeds. God knows you, and only he can produce this kind of heart. So he, he gives examples of what it looks like to live this out. Chapter 6. Thus, when you give to the needy, not if, when you give to the needy, he wants his people to be generous, but sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others, so that your giving may be in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Jesus is getting to how these hearts are formed. It's not in duty. It's not in recognition. It's not in reputation. It's out of love for God and others, not self. And this leads to worship. Jesus' kingdom forms a people of worship. Worship of God. Doing actions because of who God is. The intimacy is not in the action of praying for the people. It's in the secret place with God, saying, you hear my prayers. You listen to me, God. That is the heart that I want to be shaped by. And I think this is why, when you step back and look at the Sermon on the Mount, on a big, big level, chapters 5 through 7, you get actually right smack dab, literally, in the text, you get a prayer. And this is the Lord's prayer, centering the entire sermon in this moment. Jesus teaches his followers, this is what you need to be about in your heart. Not just what to pray, but this is how to worship. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. First, be about recognizing who God is and our place under him. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's not your kingdom, or it's your kingdom, not mine. It's your will be done, not mine. Give us this day our daily bread. Like the Israelites of old, who you provided manna for, will you give us that trust in your daily provision? 
and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. We are blessed to be a blessing. With the grace we have received, help us extend that grace and forgiveness to others. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Like the Israelites of old were saved out of evil, delivered from Egypt, let lead us, Lord, into the promises you have and restoration that we desperately need. The honest commitment to that prayer and the center of it for, for Jesus to sit there have been teaching and then he teaches them the way of worship, the heart posture to have in prayer. The honest commitment to the way of that prayer is crucial to a people having a heart of worship. And if people can be about all of that, then Jesus continues to talk about still living in this world. And as we embody that, what areas uh, the ways of this world will battle and contend and want control over your heart and your life, but to not like, let it take hold. Don't give in allowing your treasures to be found in this world. Jesus says in 621, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Again, God is after his people's hearts. Don't give it to the darkness, to the emptiness, to the nothingness. Our hearts, our lives were made for so much more. And when we falter, and when our blinders are back up, and we can't see the kingdom of heaven through the trees, and anxiety and worry is all that surrounds us, Jesus gives his followers a very natural solution. Reminders of <clears throat> God's goodness are all around you. Look at this, Matthew 6. Let me read it. He says, look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the flowers, the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow <clears throat> is thrown into heaven. <clears throat> Excuse me. Did I say heaven? <clears throat> to the oven. Thank you. That was the Lord telling me this. Will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore do not be anxious about tomorrow. For tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Just imagine you're sitting in there, and, and maybe some of us right now, as we're hearing this sermon and they're hearing it, there's just, you can be overwhelmed by so much stuff. What does this mean? How can I do it? I don't know if you've ever been really inspired by something, but you're immediately thinking about what you're going to change in your life, you know? And there's a, te there's a temptation to say, like, I need to get holy right now. And Jesus is saying, hey, slow your roll. Take a deep breath and take a good look at today. Today is not the day to freak out, but the day to take note of the birds and the flowers and the trees. Today is the day to focus on how God has already surrounded you with love and beautiful reminders of his goodness and provision. 
And I don't know about you guys, I'm a classic, like if I want to start working out and I do like five push-ups, I'm like, am I, am I buff yet? <laughs> you know, like I want to be fit right now. Um, and I heard this analogy, it's, it's classical, but like we always want the dessert, right? We always just want like, give me the thing, give me the thing that's just going to feel so good and be so great, whatever. And I heard this quote, it said, we need to be a people that are all about vegetables. <laughs> it's like, it's not attractive. It just sounds gross. But it's like, you, you follow the logic. You're like, if all you ever eat is dessert, what kind of health are you in? Right? But like caring about the small, tiny, little decisions all the time for the healthiness over the long run. Be a people about the vegetables. The heart God wants to give his people is formed by the daily denial of self and surrender in worship of God. And then we get to chapter 7. And as Jesus is kind of wrapping up his sermon, and again, we, we go through this again in our series. This is probably a, uh, over a couple of days teaching. It's not just in one sitting, but it was nicely written down for us. But he has some great teachings for his followers, these nuggets of wisdom from God himself that are just so good. Teachings like, don't be hypocritical in your judgment of others. For why you may see why you may where you may see errors with others, you're seeing it through your own crooked lens. This is seven five. You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Teachings like keep coming back to God. Don't give up when failure happens. You have a Father in heaven who is good and wants to bless you. 7-7, seven, seven, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. And those are, in the language, those are, are, are continual. Keep asking, keep seeking, keep knocking. If you seek the righteousness of the kingdom, God's resources and mercy is endless. Teachings like in verse 12, so whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to, to them. For this is the law and the prophets. Live in such a way that if you received from you how you live your life, you would be blessed. Was that confusing? Yes. AKA, what would be a blessing from God to you? Be that for others to show them a good God. Right? Be that mediator, that in-between. And though this all sounds so good, it's like, it's hard, right? It's, way, it's harder than the way of the world that says, listen, just you do you, care for yourself, forget all the haters, right? Please your own desires. Don't worry about the consequences. But Jesus calls us out. He calls this radical kingdom living. He says, if something burns in you that says, Jesus, I want this, but I, it just sounds hard. And he says, yes, 713, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many, but the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. There's no point in hiding that or pretending you're on a narrow path while living the same way as a rest on the wide path. Jesus continues to talk about those who live this way falsely and teach others to do so as well. And he says this clearly in 716, you will recognize them by their fruits, these false teachers. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. See, people can be deceived. 
but God, who all must answer to, cannot be deceived. Jesus solemnly warns about those who pretend to worship, but still have the heart of stone within them in their lives. In verse 21, he says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. That's a sobering statement, yeah? At the end of the day, Jesus kind of draws a line in the sand. He gives two options. You either buy in and orient and live every aspect of your life to the best of your ability in the belief that Jesus is king and his kingdom is near, or you don't, and you live just like the rest of the world and live for your desires and build your own kingdom. Jesus paints this picture, and we read it at the beginning, of what these two options look like. 724, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against the house and it fell and great was the fall of it. Church, which one do we want to be? I can guess at what the burning in the hearts of the disciples at this moment on the hillside, they just left everything for Jesus. They want in. They want the narrow. They want to build on the firm foundation. And just like we know that sin begins in the heart before even the action, the symptom of it. Faith begins in the heart before the action of it. The fire that consumed their hearts to leave everything behind and follow Jesus because they had faith that he had it. He had life. It could not be found outside of him. He was life. He was greater than any amount of fish, any promotion, any salary number, any vocation or family member or spouse or future plans. Jesus in this moment is drawing lines in the sand to become everything or nothing for his followers. And church, do we want to be counted among that few that make him everything? Do we burn to open our arms and display our heart before God and cry out like David, search my heart, O God, and find any sinful way within me. Purge me, clean, give me a clean, that clean heart that you talk about, O Lord. And as it does even today, what Jesus taught in the sermon, it, it blew people's minds in that moment, and it should not fall on deaf ears today. Chapter 7 concludes, And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Think about, again, these people. The scribes of the day, they taught about the authority of God's word and what they needed to do to be accepted. But Jesus taught as one who had that authority in himself and was to be obeyed in his own right. And just like going back to Exodus, the Ten Commandments were not ten suggestions to a better life. Jesus' manifesto of the kingdom of heaven is either bought into or it's not. 
You either live a life-giving life for the sake of the king and his kingdom, or you live as a slave in the shadow of this world. So Hub City, as we move to respond in our worship today, the question is before us, not as a guilt trip, but as a chance of freedom, as a chance what Jesus calls his followers to do in the first place. The gospel of the kingdom, repent for the kingdom of heaven is so close. It is at hand. And whether you believed in God your whole life or it's brand new to you, today is the day we say in our deepest hearts, our deepest being, Jesus, I want that heart that you give us. You are Lord. I repent of the ways I live apart from that. Remove my heart of stone and form in me your heart of flesh through your spirit that I may follow you into your kingdom.